What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. River and CoinKite are the two great companies which sponsor this show and respectively help you to buy and securely self-custody your Bitcoin. If you'd like to learn more about them, keep listening. If not, skip ahead 70 seconds. CoinKite, first and foremost, makes products that help you take secure self-custody of your Bitcoin. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, has been a favorite of many Bitcoiners for many years. They recently took things to the next level with the announcement of the Cold Card Q1, which takes all the awesome features of the MK4 and adds a full QWERTY keyboard, QR code scanner, large LCD screen, battery power, and a ton more. Beyond that, the CoinKite store is basically Toys R Us for Bitcoiners. Seriously, if you're into Bitcoin, you'll probably want most of the stuff on there. Check it all out, including the popular Block Clock series, or reserve a new Q1 at CoinKite.com. River is the place to build your Bitcoin wealth in the U.S. In my humble opinion, regular dollar cost averaging is the most effective and stress-free way to accumulate Bitcoin. You just set it, forget it, and watch the sats pile up. No timing, no trading, just stacking. And River makes it super easy with their zero-fee recurring Bitcoin purchases. If you want to stack even harder, you can do so with their hosted mining rigs. And if you're a developer or entrepreneur, their Lightning service allows you to integrate Lightning payments into your applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure yourself. The team is awesome. They're building the future of Bitcoin financial services, and they're in it for the long haul. Learn more about them and all their awesome products and services at river.com today. Let's do it. Joe, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to uh, having this chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. I've, uh, I'm a long-time listener, so it's exciting to be on. Um, well, why don't we, we start with you just introducing yourself to everybody, and then uh, we'll see where that naturally takes us. Sure. Um, my name is Joe Martin. I'm a singer-songwriter, a struggling musician. Um, I've been paying my dues for pretty much the past decade. Um, and I've been touring the UK and Occasionally, I get over to the States, over to Nashville, um, but I've not been in a while. But uh, yeah, I've just been singing and writing songs for the past several years, and I'm finally uh, putting out my debut album in a few weeks' time, which is really exciting and nerve-wracking. But um, uh, yeah, I picked up a, a guitar, sort of early teens. Well, I started doing music from like the age of five or six. Um, picked a guitar, early teens, sort of taught myself to play. Um, always knew I wanted to write songs, but kind of didn't really have enough life experience to, to write anything worth listening to, I guess. <laughs> um, and then sort of at the age of like 18, 19, started writing, uh, fell in love with country music, funnily enough. Um, there's not much country music over here in the UK, but uh, I, I just love like the storytelling aspect of it and um you know I, I really sort of like fell in love with with the genre being over to nashville a few times over the past few years and um yeah so i'm about to put out this debut album um i'm, I'm sure we'll get into bitcoin side of stuff later but that's kind of the music side of things what was it that inspired you or you said you kind of knew you wanted to be a musician uh it doesn't matter really what you end up doing. I mean, a lot of people don't have that type of clarity when they're younger, whether they want to go on to be anything in particular or specific. What was it that, you know, gave you that degree of clarity or confidence that you wanted to pursue pursue a career in, in music at such a young age? Um, 
I don't know, I just gravitated to it. Um, and I was just always playing and, um, you know, I was kind of on stage from like the age of five or six. So like it never really sort of, um, did you grow up in a musical family? Yeah. Well, my, my, my dad was in entertainment. My dad was a comedian actually. Really? Um, and he had a career in comedy. So it's like, yeah, there's overlaps there, but it, it is a different beast, you know, the, the, the sort of like comedy stuff from the music industry. Uh, but I have very supportive parents. They, they sort of like nudged me along that path from an early age because I showed an interest in it. Um, and then I kind of like found my own way later on with the songwriting stuff. Um, and I'd always be listening to like songwriters like James Taylor, Simon Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, like all the old school stuff. I, I definitely didn't have sort of a typical, uh, you know, playlist when I was younger, like listening to the stuff that my peers were listening to. I was listening to like, you know, older stuff. Right. Um, so that's what's kind of like, you know, influenced me and informed my songwriting as well. Um, and then the kind of, the sort of Americana country stuff came a bit later on. I was doing a lot of folk stuff uh, earlier on. And then, you know, I didn't really give a thought to like sort of American music, um, American country music until I was sort of like late teens. Um, and I discovered this TV show called Nashville. I don't know if you, if you ever watched that. No. Um, a lot of UK artists that do country, they, they cite that show a lot as being an influence, but um, that was shown over here. And I kind of got exposed to that kind of music and then started listening to more contemporary country artists. And sort of just like, was like, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and it was all very story-based and lyric-based, and that's what I love about songwriting. So it was like a natural fit for me. Um, so, yeah, that's you know, what it's, I love. It's funny you bring up uh, Dylan. So growing up, I, I guess a teenager, I guess I listened to some of the, the like contemporary stuff, rap, like you know Eminem and stuff was popular when I was a teenager, and I listened to some of that. I listened to some like eighties rock, like guns and roses and all that kind of jazz. So I had, I had fairly, fairly eclectic taste. Um, and I like, uh, like a Rolling Stone would be on, you know, random playlists and stuff. Cause that's kind of like, you know, obviously one of the all time classics, but I never really got Bob Dylan. I just kind of knew some of the songs and I thought they were, they were good. And then I remember one morning I was hung over as shit and I ordered like a ton of, I was probably 20, 21. I ordered a ton of food, you know, like chicken wings and ice cream. And it's from all my favorite because, you know, I was just so hungover. I needed the the comfort pizza. Yeah. And just by chance, I turned on the TV and on PBS or whatever, like the, the public broadcaster, they were airing um, the Bob Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival in 1963, four and five. I don't know yeah. if you've seen it, but it's all, it's like in, it's all in black and white yeah, and it's yeah. so fascinating because it's, it, there's no commentary or anything. It's literally just his performances, all of his performances in 63. And then the next ones are in 64 and the next in 65. And you get to see, cause that was the period where, you know, Dylan had, I mean, I guess he's evolved a lot over the course of career, but this was like the most, it made a lot of fuss, you know, that he kind of went from being a, a hardcore folk singer you know just with his acoustic guitar and his harmonica to in 65 he plugged in at the newport folk festival and it was yeah. a whole big thing you know this is when bitcoin uh, bitcoin dylan went electric right and and 
a lot of people were unhappy about it. And, you know, six, in 1966, he did a global tour. He had a ton of shows in, in Europe. One of, his, one of my favorite albums of his actually is um, the bootleg series. It's actually called Royal Albert Hall, but it was in, in Manchester Free Trade Hall, I believe, the actual recording. Yeah. And it was him. And I think at that time he was doing half the set acoustic, half electric. And when he would plug, when he'd go electric, the crowd would be booing and like, you know, yeah. jeering him and everything. And he'd be on the mic booing back at them. And he'd be telling his crew, like, come on, play it loud. Like, you know, like really throw it in their faces. And um, in any case, I just, all those performances if that, that were in that documentary, I don't know like what happened to me if I was super susceptible that day, whatever, but it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And from that moment on, you know, Dylan was my favorite artist ever, you know, and I went down the Dylan rabbit hole and all the stuff. And, you know, just I became like a Dylan file hardcore. Yeah. And, have, you, and to this, have, you, have you read the books? Answer, well, I read answer. Tarantula. Is that what you're? No, I was or, thinking about Chronicles and oh, Anthony Scuduto. No, I, is Chronicles like his autobiography, autobiography and, sort of thing? I don't know if it's an autobiography, but. It's a biography. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read that one, but I've I've read a ton of stuff. And Tarantula was just kind of like this streaming stream of consciousness thing he did back in '65 or '66. It makes no damn sense, but you know, it's <laughs> it's one of his you know creative out uh, productions. So you kind of had to look into it. But anyways, um, uh, yeah, you know, so that was it for me, and I was I was hooked after that. And I was I was reading your bio on your website before this, and interesting to hear that he was one of your. Uh, influences what what about his uh style work music drew you in you know originally um well i mean it's again it's the lyrics like what i like about dylan is that so i'm with my lyric writing i'm very like matter of fact i sort of say say it how it is and i want to try and like write a song that's like a three hour film but in three minutes you know what i mean like a whole story of a character and very like, you know, not leave that much room for interpretation, but be quite like clear about what I'm saying. But Dylan kind of writes in a way that it could mean anything and people can bring their own interpretations to it, mm. which I don't know, in some ways, I don't know if that's easier to do than be very like crystal clear about what you're writing or if it's actually harder to do, but he kind of like taps into like a subconscious part of, the mind where he's like using these images and these words that like conjure up like it's almost dreamlike you know yeah um and i really like that uh but like he said i just like the fact that he just didn't care he just didn't care like what people thought he was mm. like this is what i'm gonna do and you're either gonna like it or you're not and i'm just gonna keep doing it until you like it so i'm not gonna change you're gonna have to like get on board yeah. Yeah. you know with the electric stuff which is really cool like i don't think any artist today would get away with that especially not a signed artist like mm -hmm. the label would be like you crazy you can't you can't boo back at the crowd or you can't unless <laughs> it was part, unless it was part of like some contrived marketing thing right right like yeah. but it seemed that that was really organic and it was just like kind of like the punk rock of folk that he was doing yeah, I mean, it, it certainly conveys a purity to the music, you know, that the artist is not willing to compromise, like, this is what I want to play at this time, and that's how I'm going to play it. And he's, you know, he's obviously become, uh, 
known for playing his songs differently from performance to performance, you know, like just changing them up in weird ways. And I think it's just because he, I mean, he's so dedicated and committed to the music. He wants to explore the musical space all the time. And I don't yeah. know, like pre pre 66. And it's funny you mentioned about like um, messages in songs and stuff, because of course, a lot of people, when he for you know he became popular because a lot of people from the protest movements thought that he was kind of like their voice in a sense and he would always shun that he would be like look i won't be at the rally i won't be at the thing i'm not and i remember this um there was a press conference in 1965 i believe in san francisco and that's become kind of a, a mini documentary at the because it's just the, the press asking dylan questions and yeah. he's smoking cigarettes and being aloof as he often is and some uh some young girl from movie magazine uh, chimes up and says, do you think your songs have a, a subtle or obvious message? And, you know, Dylan like fidgets around for a second. It's like, like, like what kind of message? And she's like, Oh, I don't like, and they kind of go back and forth like that for a bit. And she was just like, look, I don't know, but your songs are supposed to have some kind of a message. And so everyone just laughs because she's like, you know, she can't say what the message is. And she, you know, clearly she's kind of just there uh, for the magazine. But it was funny that, you know, he and he was genuinely being like, what, what kind of message do you mean? Like, I, it's almost like he uh, couldn't empath like he, he it was so far removed from his mind that he was genuinely like, what do you what do you mean message? You know, it's so funny because you, you take songs like. um masters of war for example or you take uh times are changing and you of course you, you you they kind of jive with what's going on at the time and you think there's a message and if, you know even if he is kind of writing stream of consciousness he's using the environment and the circumstance and what's happening in the world to inform that to some degree so you know there's obviously a relation there but it was it was interesting how he always shunned any other motivation or anything other than just the pure creative musical expression, it seemed. And he would allow that to flow through him seemingly, regardless what the outcome might be. And at least for me, I mean, he, he's done a lot of cool stuff after 66, but 66, I feel like was kind of the, the height of his explosion and popularity in the culture. And then, you know, later that year, at, during the tour, like right. he was very maybe drugged up or just kind of out there. And, and the, there was a, Seem an unsustainable, but a very unique uh, element to his music and all that kind of stuff. And then he had the motorcycle accident and he didn't, he didn't perform publicly for several years and on, on goes the legend of, of Bob Dylan. But, um, but yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, he was one of your influences as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's i uh, I've seen him a couple of times recently as well. Have you seen him recently? In, in concert because yeah. it's just like a world tour right well the, the never-ending tour right that's what it's called he i saw him uh in 2009 in canada uh -huh. and then i saw him in 20 i want to say 2012 in beijing oh, cool. um, and you know even then i can't imagine what it's like now because even then well dylan was never known purely for his voice right and and as an old man i mean he's you can't really hear anything that he's saying. It's not very articulate and it's just grumbly. And, you yeah. know, sometimes he's more animated on the guitar and the harmonica and sometimes less. And, but it's like you go because you're in the presence of like one of the greats and you don't even really care what sound comes out. You're just like, exactly. You know, you're there. And, uh, have you seen him recently? Yeah. It's funny because both times I didn't actually pay for a ticket. 
the first time a guy that took me is in like a Bob Dylan fan appreciation society or whatever. So he gets that really cheap ticket. So I went with him um, and the front row, it was hilarious. The front row of the theater was giving him an ovation after every single song, which was crazy. <laughs> um, and I think they just probably follow him around from gig to gig. Um, but like, I, I didn't even realize he played Blowing in the Wind. It was that different. You know what I mean? It's oh, just yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. You couldn't recognize um, it, man. Yeah, yeah. And he, I think he plays, you know, each song differently every night, probably just to keep himself sane. Yeah. But, um, and then I saw him in uh, Hyde Park in London with Neil Diamond. Um, and he, he, he did two, he did two songs that everyone sort of like recognized. So that was like a crowd pleaser night for Dylan. Because <laughs> every other night he just does what he wants, you know, and he'll turn yeah. his back on the crowd and he won't, he won't talk between songs. I just think it's hilarious. But, um, I also found it hilarious that did you did you see that he like won the Nobel Prize for literature and he yeah. didn't even bother he didn't even bother accepting it. Or like he won like something like a million dollars a check and he didn't even bother picking it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean he, he shunned he shunned everything basically his whole career, right? I mean yeah. I guess he's done some uh you know, he you remember seeing him in the the live aid, I think it was live aid or uh like when all the famous musicians were singing we are the world or something and he, he oh, participated yeah. and he, in that and, he and he's really just there he's just there yeah. looking like he's looking around like like gr grimacing or, or whatever people and he's not really into it and he's kind of like what the fuck am i doing here and what are all who are all these people <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah he's just a, a legendary character and you know you got it again like back to that point like i think people when he first came out there was a, such a sincerity to it and those early performances had such a gravity because people were just kind of stunned by it. And he's proved, yeah. I think, through the course of his career that like that was actually genuine, that he wasn't messing around like he was just about the music. He considered himself a musician. He wanted to just hone and 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 perform his craft. And here he is like, what is he, 90 or in his 80s at, at least? Right? Yeah. And he's yeah. still he's still all he does is is tour and performance crazy yeah it's pretty yeah it's pretty crazy do you see yourself yeah. being like that like you know performing for the rest of your life yeah that'd be that'd be good going but um i have no idea <laughs> what's it what's it been you mentioned you opened up saying you kind of been a struggling musician what's that experience like you know and because you know we all have needs and we all have aspirations and everyone's heard the kind of uh the 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 art, the archetypal, or everyone's heard about the struggling musician before, but you know, what's it, what's it like actually just knowing that you want to commit to this and trying to commit to it, but being difficult to break through and get gigs and get listeners and the whole, whole thing. What's the journey been like for you? Yeah, it's kind of, it's weird. Cause it's like, we're in an age where there's an abundance of, of everything, mm. but especially like media and entertainment. So I think like the hardest part is just sort of like cutting through and being heard in the first place by people for a start. Um, <clears throat> but then like, you know, it's kind of, it's just going back to um, grassroots where doing things, just building up a fan base one, one gig at a time, which is how it's always been really. But it's kind of like, there is no substitute for that grind. I don't think. Um, I mean, you do see artists that just, somehow seem to just take off really quickly but then they're almost forgotten about just as quickly as they as they came up uh, and then on the other hand it's like the artists that have struggled for 
years and years and years when they do reach the peak the audience that they've brought along the way uh, and that have seen them struggle from like playing to a room of like 10 15 20 people to when they're playing a big theater somewhere like that audience stays with them then and they have like longevity it seems mm. so i kind of like try and tell myself you know i'm still starting off i'm just releasing my first album it's been a grind up to this point and it's like hopefully the, the, the fans that I'm nurturing now will still be with me in another decade. Like that's that kind of thing. Like I met, um, I was lucky enough to meet one of my heroes. Uh, last time I was in the States, sorry, the time before is I think it's 2017. Um, I was in Nashville and I went out to, um, Alabama. Um, I went to Muscle Shoals to, uh, to, uh, see a guy called John Paul White. Well, I, I, I didn't actually even know if he was going to be there. Basically, he was gigging in the UK. And um, after the show, I got talking to his guitarist because his guitar everyone like flocked to the merch stand to, to chat to John. And I and I saw his guitarist having a beer at the bar on his own. So I went and chatted to his guitarist. And you know, said I was I was a huge fan, like John Paul White had like influenced me massively and like got me into songwriting. And um, he was like, Oh, cool, man. And I said, Oh, I'm coming back to Nashville. And he was like, Oh. Well, if you come back, make the trip to Muscle Shoals. It's only like two and a half, three hours. Uh, and that in the States is nothing, right? <laughs> it's like just mm -hmm. ripping down the road. So he said, you know, come and, come and see us. Um, and I was like, if, that, if you're genuine about that offer, I will actually make the trip. And he was like, yeah, sure, come down. So anyway, so I did get, I end up going back to Nashville. And I sent him a message on Facebook or whatever and said, hey, like, is that offer still there? And he didn't reply. And I was like, I think, yeah, I had a hire car for a few days. And I was like, should I just go and just see what happens? Or should I not bother? Is it going to be a wasted trip? And I thought, well, you know, it'll be an adventure. I'm going to go see what happens. So I jumped in the car, drove to Muscle Shoals. And uh, I knocked on the door. Of, they have like their own uh, record label. So I knocked on the door. And um, I was greeted by t two ladies. And I explained that I was, at, I was over from the UK. And... Um, John's guitarist had invited me. So, well, he, you know, he'd offered for me to come over if I was ever in the States. And they said, oh, that's incredible. They're coming back from a gig tonight. They'd love it that you've come, you know, you've traveled. Uh, can you come back tomorrow? Um, I said, well, I've traveled like three hours, you know, or whatever it was. Um, you know, I'll just probably get, try and find an Airbnb. And it turns out that like Muscle Shoals has such a history. Of, I was just completely ignorant to this at the time. You know, but there's like Fame Studios and Jacksonville Highway Studios. Uh, and I've only since been there, watched the Muscle Shoals documentary about, you know, all the music that, that was made there. And I had no idea. So I, I was told about this and I went around those recording studios and like did all the touristy thing there. Um, and they actually got back that evening and I got a message saying, uh, hey, Joe, we heard, we heard you're in town. We're going for uh, some Thai food. Do you want to join us? Uh, so I went along and John wasn't there, but his manager and his guitarist were there. Um, and basically I was just like, you know, again, fangirling over John and saying, you know, I'm a huge fan. And, you know, um, I said this, this uh, program Nashville is what really got me into country as well. And there's a particular song on the show. And they said, what song? And I said, it's called No One Will Ever Love You. And they said, oh, John wrote that song. And I didn't know that he'd written that song. I thought that was just a song on the TV show that they'd just been, I don't know, they're like, no, John wrote that. 
So I was like, this is crazy. And they were like, oh, come to over to his house and you can tell him and meet him. So I was like, okay. So anyway, they took me over to the studio uh, just to show me around. And he lived next door and he saw the light on, thought it was getting robbed or something. Went round. I was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> they're like, oh, Joe's here from the UK. Anyway, we got introduced and um, I was telling him that I was just starting off uh, you know, doing music. And I was like, I already feel like it's so tough and I'm really struggling. And he said, I remember he just said, take it from me as a guy that took until he was 40 years old to, to make it, you know, he said, you've got time. It's okay. You know, don't, don't freak out. Like just keep going, keep doing what you're doing. And that like gave me a lot of like peace in a way, because yeah. um, just to hear that from him, Cause he's, he's like won Grammys and stuff and he's written for TV shows. He's toured the world. He like supported Adele on her world tour. Like he was a part of a duo called the civil wars. I don't know if you've ever heard of the civil wars, but they were like, they were just about to like blow up and, you know, be massive. And th they ended up splitting sadly. But, um, so it was re reassuring to sort of hear from one of your heroes that it does take, you know, a long time and you just totally. go, uh, so, so that was quite reassuring, but no, I mean, I've just been gigging away. Obviously the past few years with COVID is really just like, just being like a sledgehammer and it's just not me for six because mm. you know, you've got all this work lined up and then just in a flash, it just disappears. Um, and being self-employed, it's not like you've got any furlough or anything to fall back on. So it's hard, it was hard building that back up and getting back into it. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of, like you just got to keep going just keep on keeping on really how do you and maybe john gave you some advice on this but you know i put myself in in your position let's say or in any struggling anyone's position and surely at a certain point you know because we, we're all impatient right we all want things to happen sooner than they often happen and so though that impatience probably causes many of us to say well am i doing something wrong could i be doing something better should I be doing something differently that would expedite this process that I feel like I'm, I'm on or this journey that I feel like I'm on? What, and so like, what I mean by that is how do you, what's your like compass for, and we, this is, we were just discussing Dylan, right? He's kind of a great example because now he was popular early. So it's a bit of a, not a perfect example, but he never let what the audience wanted from him to dictate the music that he made. You know, he was his own compass basically. So how does an artist, you know, I don't know if it tightrope is the right analogy, but how do they, um, you know, tour and gig and make music? And to what degree do they integrate the feedback from the audience? And to what degree do they not do that? Because they don't want to presume that that's the way, you know, forward when and, and leaving their own, let's say, creative impulses, um, you know to not guide them or, or, or less, less a part of that decision-making. Do you know what I mean? So how do you, how do you navigate that is, I guess, is a question. Yeah. As, as cliche as it sounds, I think you have got to kind of like stay true to what you want to do. You can't like, I don't think you can write music that you just think people want to listen to It's cause it's not going to be genuine, mm. but you've got to write something that means something to you and that you'd want to listen to. You've got to be kind of selfish about it in a way. And then I feel like you've got to find people that like that. You know, you've got to, you've got to sort of accept that your music's not going to be for everyone um, and just 
focus your efforts on the people that are going to like what you do, like anything, I guess. Sure. Uh, but yeah, definitely just say like, sort of don't go chasing what, like what's in vogue or what's in what, like what the trend is or anything like that. Um, and it's kind of like, maybe don't use the past as like a blueprint because things have changed so much. Like back in Dylan's day, like the be all and end all was the record deal. And that was it. Like, and when I, like from what I've seen on documentaries and what, from what I've read, he, uh, like no one wanted to touch him because he sounded so weird and he was like a weird guy and he just sounded awful, his horrible voice. And it's like, he was singing all these crazy weird songs and like, and then someone covered, I think it was Peter, Paul and Mary, like covered um, Blowing in the Wind. And then that was it. And then everyone wanted Dylan just overnight. So it kind of shows how fickle the industry has sort of always been mm. in a way that you just need like one break, one lucky break, and then it can just like change everything. But um, I guess these days it's like now with the internet uh, and hopefully with value for value, you know, if that keeps growing, it could, it could be a case of, you know, you could be your own label and you, you could make a pretty good career out of just doing everything yourself uh, and not needing to sign a deal. Um, in a way, which is like what I eventually hope will happen. Like, you know, um, I hope value for value and where everything's going will lead to a, a day where, um, you know, because I'm doing everything myself with this tour and this album, you know, I produced it all myself. Well, I say I produced it, someone else has mixed and mastered it and stuff, but the whole concept and all the writing and the arrangements and everything I've sort of done myself. And then I've put, pretty much booked all the tour myself and promoted it myself. So, and like done the branding and everything. So in a way I've kind of been my own label in that respect. So it's like, you know, I might as well, now I've got the skill set to do that. Um, I just need to kind of like build that up and just make it bigger next time. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think like there's the tools now, uh, totally. that have the opportunity to do that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess in the past, the the labels, distribution was huge, right? You had to get the physical discs and CDs and stuff out to all the, the retail locations. And then promotion was pretty big too, you know, paying for ads or installations and places and that kind of stuff. And now, I mean, distribution is nothing. It's like, which app are you using is basically it. You can get people to, to, to use different apps easily enough. Yeah. And then promotion and it's promotion is is still involved but i would say it's certainly different than it used to be you know like i mean and obviously there's still a place you know the, the the legacy media and music industry is still alive and you know probably will be for some time but certainly there's a million examples of people using the social media and digital tools at their disposal to be their own promoters and as you say i mean if you get one viral clip or something like that just to bring you know to bring a million people could be uh, you could be brought to their attention you know just in a in an afternoon because something went viral and then that you know 10,000 of those people go down and pursue more and listen more and you know it's a totally different it changes overnight basically um and that can yeah. happen now and that's what's so interesting about it and you know now that we have value for value capability i mean 
it's even more compelling because you put those two things together and the the listener can compensate you directly no middleman no commissions or almost no commissions like one percent or whatever the platform has um and it's that's the way it should be you know uh what do you i get maybe we'll i want to talk a little bit about your album but let's let's talk a little value for value first um how did you you know come across bitcoin and value for value and, and what were you what were your first impressions when you were confronted with the notion that you know you provide these things you, you know your, your music your hard work for free and just leave it up to the generosity in people's hearts to compensate you for them well it wasn't that big a leap because like in a way the music's already free if you're on spotify or youtube like you don't see anything you know mm. even if you're a pretty big artist you're not seeing really much at how all. much how much would a spotify compensate like a huge artist like a so they like they John claim, Legend or something yeah they claim that for it's a dollar for every 250 streams so that works out at 0.04 i think uh pence per play 0.05 pence or whatever um and whether that's the case like i know of people that have had a few million streams and they've still never seen anything. So never seen anything? Not really, no. No. So mm. it's yeah, it's kind of crazy. And then it's like, well, um, you know, Spotify have, you know, all these costs and these overheads and they've got like these, you know, big offices in London and stuff and you know, the money's going somewhere, but uh, it's, it's definitely not really finding its way to the artists. And it's kind of funny because it's like the platform itself would be, wouldn't have any value if it wasn't for the music on there to begin mm. with. Um, I, guess, I guess it does. And this is the, the basic premise or one of them of, of value for value. It's like the whole world is having to come to grips that more and more of the things that we engage with or engage in are digital. And that means, as you say on your website, there's a zero marginal cost of production. And that means there, there's basically no scarcity, you know, and people try to ring fence digital assets, but someone can always circumvent them and share them and, you know, copy them and pass them around. And it's yeah. like, you know, all industries are coming to grips with like what that means. And so it's almost like, you know, I, th I think embracing value for value is kind of embracing the tides of change, because if you're just trying to continue to ring fence digital content and get people to pay for it you, you're, you're fighting the tide basically and yeah, you're fighting a losing battle yeah. yeah exactly and i mean i get why you, you're incentivized to do it for a time because you you know you a lot of those platforms are still making good money but it, it certainly seems like it's inevitable that that will be entirely circumvented and then it's like well now what and i think the early value for value pioneers are saying well the now what is if the digital content is infinite then much as you might not like it and much as it may be a huge departure from how things worked in the material or physical world, we might be in a circumstance where the only thing you can do is try to provide as much value as possible and then uh, make it easy for your listeners or, or viewers or whatever type of content you have to compensate you in return for that value if, if they feel like it. And you know, that's super foreign to a lot of people, like because most people would just say, well, if it's free, why would I ever do that? But I do think uh, I do think developing a culture of reciprocity will probably be 
will probably develop more as we move into this space. And if if early Bitcoiners and Bitcoin adoption is any indication, like it's, it certainly seems like there's an element of that. Now, maybe it's a little bit more exuberant right now because it's so novel and everyone just wants to send zaps around and throw sats around because it's fun. But I, I, I do think that uh, a, a culture of reciprocity of value for value will be an element of that. And I see it emerging in, well, I see that being a constituent element of why this will work in the future. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's never going to work, but I don't know. I, I, I think it has legs. And from my, yeah. it feels good too. You know, like it feels good to listen to music, read an article that you valued and there's no paywall. There's nothing like that. No one's forcing you to do anything. They're just yeah. at the bottom. They're saying, do you want to give value back? And most of the time I'm like, yeah, I do. Here's 25 cents. Here's a buck. Here's Absolutely. five yeah. bucks, whatever. So from the, it seems like from the artist side, there is no downside at the moment because it's like, it's just one more platform. Right. You've got to put your music on. You, you already put it on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera, Tidal, whatever. So it's only like one or two more to add it to, which isn't, you know, that big a deal. The only difference is you actually might make some money. <laughs> <laughs> and then from the audience, the like the listener side, it just seems like until the network effect is there, there's kind of like no real reason for the audience to move across because like, I do feel like people do want to give to the artist, but if all their music is in Spotify mm -hmm. and it's just easy and it's in the one app, they're not going to like go to somewhere else just to listen to Joe Martin and then come back to Spotify. If oh. Joe Martin's already in Spotify with all the other artists. Mm -hmm. Now that being said, it's like my, the way I'm going to kind of, approach it with my current fan base and listeners because the thing is like i'm only sort of doing this on twitter at the moment and to people that kind of get what i'm talking about because like my regular listeners just don't i don't think they i don't think they know what i'm talking about really when i say value for value or you know stream sats or whatever they don't know but um i think like i get people coming up to me at shows uh, quite frequently now and i still do well for cds like which is great. I'm in a genre that people still buy CDs, a demographic as well of, <laughs> of listeners that still have CD players and have money to actually buy a CD. So, which is great. But a lot of people are coming up to me and saying like, I really want to buy a CD, but I don't own a CD player, uh, but I want to be able to support you, you know? And right. for that person, like value is ideal. Um, so it's like, you know, if you, if I went up to, if I asked a crowd at a gig and said like, look, if there was a way to support me where you could send money directly to me instead of sending it to Spotify with your subscription, where you could listen to my songs, where you could just pay me one off and then listen for free indefinitely, like, you know, would you, would you rather do that than pay Spotify? And people will be like, well, yeah, because we want to support the artist and not a huge corporation sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so they'd be willing to do that, but the technology needs to get there. It just needs to be super seamless. The onboarding needs to get there, which is quite not, it's not quite there yet. Um, and then the network effects of the platform. Like if there's the same amount of music on like Wavelake or maybe Fountain as there is on Spotify one day, then it might make sense for people to, to jump over. Uh, but I think it's just going to be a case of artists encouraging their fans. Hey, go over to this platform. Listen to me on there. You can send me value directly on there, peer to peer. And that supports what I do. Uh, and then maybe you can go back to Spotify and listen as much as you want on there. But 
at least with the knowledge that you have supported me something, you know, mm. given me something. Yeah, no, because, I agree. Yeah. yeah. CDs, CDs aren't going to be around forever. They're already, you know, getting phased out. So it's like, it's great to have physical merch. And it's, it's a real big help sometimes when you're doing a gig. And like, maybe the fee's not amazing, but you know, you're going to make it up on selling CDs and t-shirts and stuff. But as soon as CDs just disappear, I mean, it might end up a situation where if value for value keeps growing, that becomes the, the bulk of your sort of uh, recorded side of your income coming in. And like CDs are just like a nice novelty thing. Like the people don't even use, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree that it's tough to overcome the network effect and, you know, unless you really want to be a supporter, you know, people have their go-to platform and they, they probably consume a lot of their music on that. Um, and if it's not value enabled, then, you know, maybe they don't become a supporter, but I know you're on Noster. Have you, have you kind of allowed yourself to think about how that might change the game? And, you know, because that, the way I see that developing is you're going to have less of this kind of moats around different clients on a nosterized internet, if we want to say. And so that would seem to maybe overcome that particular problem because people might go from client to client or all the, you know, all clients might be value enabled. And as, and the, the real pull of something like that is the freedom, right? That's the selling point of something like Noster, not just that you can say what you want and not be censored, not be the platform, but also the freedom to move between clients and take your followers followers with you. And so I think that will be a very compelling, you know, over the course of time reason for people to migrate to clients on Noster rather than apps on the normal internet. And yeah. in, su in such a scenario, then, you know, you, you have, well, the network effect is working in your favor. More and more people are coming on, more and more people are capable of sending value back. Um, and so then, you know, presumably that would be a much, that would be a, that would be an ideal scenario for you, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I've still not got my head around Nostra. Is, is it like Nostra is going to turn every platform into an intranet in a way? Because like, unless that platform then plugs into Nostra, it's not going to be like, will Twitter become a Nostra client sort of thing? Well, People think about that. Like, I think. It is kind of like, in my understanding, you know, I'm not super technical, but my understanding, it is kind of like an, an alternative internet, even though it obviously uses, you know, elements of the existing one. But um, I think it's just, uh, a, you know, a, a freer censorship resistant, you know, value enabled internet. I don't like, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, you could integrate lightning payments and zaps in, in, into Twitter as well, as well, right? But the real thing here is that you control, you know, your identity and you control your followers are associated with your, you know, your private key and not with, you know, your account that you created on Twitter or YouTube or what have you. And yeah. I, you know, when I think about that, I, I just think, wow, think about, so one, again, you have that primary incentive that is freedom. And I know, you know, many people in the world today probably don't value that, but I think over the last two years, a lot of people have come to value that because they've seen just how much censorship and misinformation and deplatforming and collusion and all this stuff that's going on. They, they just, they, the, the value proposition of like being in a space where it's like, look, you can say what you want. You'll never be deplatformed. You can't lose your followers. How do you feel about that? And I think more and more people are going to say, wow, I feel great about that. And then you layer on top of that, 
the incentives created or how compelling it is to, I think there'll be a ton of competition for clients of various kinds, whether it's social media or whatever other applications on Noster. And because there's no, the moat around them, because you're not locked in, basically, you can go from one to the other if you prefer the features or the, you know, uh, the, the uh, details of the application or what it, what it allows you to do. And there's no, there's no detrimental effect, right? You, you, you know, you still, you don't lose out. You're just basically upgrading from client to client. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of competition and it's really going to be able to hone in. It's going to be able to, 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 to determine what features people actually want. And that will just accelerate the degree to which there's an incentive to migrate over to Nostra versus staying on your, you know, your legacy apps on the, on the normal internet. And uh, so, you know, who knows how long it'll take and if it evil scale and work in the long term, it seems to have a lot of legs and yeah, I'm, absolutely. Op I'm optimistic I'm, about it. I'm loving being on there. But I mean, there was a, I put up like a little um, like short video of my latest single that I just brought out and it was like a 30 second clip or something. I put it on Nostagram and uh, someone sent me like a dollar's worth of sats. And I was like, that would have taken 250 streams on Spotify, supposedly. And this isn't for the actual song. This is like for a preview of the song. Yeah. Someone's just a new dollar. And it's just like, man, that's crazy. Like, and I think I, I put up a post saying like, does this show how broken our current streaming platforms are? Or does it show like how amazing the potential is of open networks like Nostr? Yeah. So it's well, super probably, exciting. Probably been, both, right? Probably both, yeah. I've been messing around with Nostra Marketplace uh, and I had some, like, I put some albums up for sale uh, and some t-shirts recently. And uh, I've had like three orders for my albums and um, someone tagged Ben Ark, uh, Ellen Bits, Ben, uh, into, into the post. And he was like, you do know this isn't, this is in beta and it's super buggy and everything. Like you're being, you're being really reckless. So I was like, I don't care. I'm happy to try, <laughs> I'm happy to try it, see if it blows up. Yeah. Um, so no, it's 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 just moving at a crazy a crazy fast pace, right? It's like really exciting to see, you know, where it'll go. And I don't, I, I'm not technical enough to know like what what can and can't be done. But it's like I don't know if can, can a like a media player can like a streaming thing be plugged into Nostr or can you know can you host like well, can relays will they be able to host like uh, audio files and MP3s and serve those to people for Sats and they'll take a cut if they're hosting your songs on your behalf and forward and then forward the sats onto you. I don't know. Like, yeah, it'd be cool to see, to see. I think, I think that's, that's the promise and that's what people are thinking about it. But even in the sense, you know, even in these social media clients that have been kind of the first to gain traction on Noster, there's just, there's now a much greater incentive to produce good content. So you see whether it's just a text tweet whether it's a video someone made, whether it's a song someone's posting, um, you know, you you post that out and send it to the world, and not only does it get you know uh, renoted, whatever the term is on Noster for retweet, but you know it gets sent around, so you it, there's exposure to it because people like it. But now you know you you always you routinely see tweets, whatever they might be, a creator put out you know a good Nostrich image or something silly. And they'll be, you know, they'll be zapped like 10 to 100,000 uh, sats, if not more. And yeah. again, think about how many people are on those platforms right now. Like 
really on them, not like signed up and and officially are like part of the count, but like actively engaging there. We're talking like single digit thousands, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so when that scales up to 100,000, a million, 10 million, then I I think there's a tremendous, uh, there'll be a tremendous incentive and, you know, tremendous reward. And there'll be business models based on how easy it is to monetize digital content, um, be rewarded for digital content on, on those platforms. Yeah. It produces like better signal as well for everything. Yeah. hundred percent. Better, you know, high signal for like, you know, educational content and also just like entertainment content, you know, entertaining content. Um, but no, I think th- this is what I'm thinking with buy for value. You know, if, if I, as a, an artist could eventually build up, say like 5,000 diehard fans, which isn't like out the realms of possibility, you know, to do, oh. you know, those 5,000 fans, if they're on a platform like Nosta where they can instantly zap you, however much value, you know, each time you release a song, if you, if you release a song every month or whatever, and those 5,000 people are zapping you like a dollar, you know, a song, for instance, that that's like good money, you know, mm-hmm, that's like mm-hmm. good living. Um, and definitely supplemented with the live stuff as well. It, it brings back that middle ground that's been taken away by like the streaming platforms at the moment that the value isn't flowing to the creators. It's kind of like, you know, pre-internet, I think when the internet came along, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm too young to know this, <laughs> but like people were buying CDs in the nineties for like 20 pounds, right? Back in the nineties. And that's when 20 pounds was worth a lot more than it is now. Mm. Um, so as soon as Napster came along or whatever, and they could get it for free, people probably lost their minds. Like, Oh my God, I've been paying 20 pounds for a CD. And like, now I can listen to as much as I want. I don't have to pay for it. And it just went like, you know, completely the other way. And then, you know, uh, Napster got shut down and then LimeWire came along and that kind of faded away. And then like Spotify and YouTube have kind of taken that void, that filled that void where it's like, they say, oh, well, you know, we're, we'll pass on a bit of money to the artist, but like, it's probably not what they should be getting uh, or, or what they were getting before. Uh, but at least they're not, at least it's not pirated or being streamed for like literally nothing. Um, and we're, you know, we're going to bombard people with adverts and people are paying with their attention. And like, like every social platform has worked on that model. And I think that model is kind of coming to an end. Mm. Uh, interestingly, as value for value is taking off. So I think those two things are going to cross over. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I think people, when, when, when the network effect takes off and people are following an artist that they love, they will want to give to them and support them if they're producing good content. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's a question about that. Like, even, you know, even, I mean, maybe it's because, you know, I'm early to this, uh, relatively and like people that are, are watching what I'm doing on Nostra and Bitcoin, Twitter and stuff are kind of like, um, you know, being overly generous, but like, for instance, I released a song a couple of days ago. Um, and I've already made like $30 on it from mm. the people. Sats. And it's like, that would have taken like 8,000 streams or something on Spotify. And it's happened in two days and it's not much, 
but it's like when you when you think about it in in context put it into perspective of what you've got otherwise it's kind of mind-blowing really so no i think it's just a, it's a time thing it's yeah. it's you know um sorry I think I, well, I was just going to say, I think you nailed a piece of it earlier too, in that the less friction, like friction is a huge aspect of it. So, you know, why do people, you sign up for Spotify, you give them your credit card and you, you know, you accept whatever the monthly fee is, annual fee, and you don't have to worry about it again. Cause like yeah. you can, you can still get all the music on the torrent sites and all that kind of stuff, more or less. It's just a hassle, you know? So these platforms just figured out, like they found the balance between the, like, what people are willing to pay to not have to go through the hassle. And so I think if, if value for value is to take off and I expect this will happen, you know, the friction has to be greatly reduced to the point where like, however it gets done. But if I want to listen to uh, let's, let's say one of your songs, it's literally like a button, you know, two presses of a button to give value back, you know, at yeah. the end of it, let's say, um, yeah. and figuring out how to do that with, minimal friction will be important, but I think it can be done. And when it is done, then the only other component is, will people be willing to, to give? And again, this is pure speculation, but what I've felt in my own experience and observing others is that, you know, you, you'll have a, a distribution, right? So you'll have a bunch of people, like let's say for easy numbers, 80% that listen for free, 15% that give you, you know, 10 cents, a, a penny, something, and then 5% they give you a buck, two bucks, three bucks, five bucks, you know, the, 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 the big, uh, tips basically. Um, and I, I think like, I think that can work. And I think part of the reason is because there's something that feels good about giving value back. We're not used to it. Cause we're always, we, we've been, you know, we conditioned by this highly transactional model where like someone sets a price, you pay it and you get it. And that like, that's, that's it. But again, in this, more digitized world that we're moving into in this more value enabled world, I think people will start to consider like, uh, how it feels to not have to give back. So you get to choose and then you're confronted with the choice. Like, should I give back? What's the right thing to do here? Yeah. And I think a lot of people will start to chew on that and they'll be like, well, I enjoyed it. I got value out of it. Why shouldn't I send some back? Yeah. Um, and from my perspective, it feels good. Again, yeah. like it might might just be 10 cents, but like to know that I'm able to do something that's going to send value directly back to the person that provided me with the value with no middleman, no, you know, very minimal friction. It feels great. You know, it's kind of like a, it's a, maybe it's uh, attached to the feel, the feeling of even spending sats. Like when I was in El Salvador a little while back and I, it was the first time I really spent sats and uh, I bought, I think the first thing I bought was a burrito. And there's just something about it that felt good. You know, it felt good to relinquish something that I coveted so much for yeah. something that I deemed of value. And the exchange feels more pure. It feels more, more right in, in some, uh, in some weird sense. And so I, I think the same sort of dynamics will play out in the value for value and like digital only world and possibly in, in the physical meat space world in the future. And I, yeah. I just think, uh, more and more people will will start to confront that question of should I give back? And a certain portion will answer in the affirm affirmative. And at a certain scale, well, I think you people like yourself and many other creators get supported by that because if this thing just continues to grow and grow and grow, then the the pool of people that are willing to do that is growing. 
And then the, the cream rise to the top, like anything, right? The, the best creators, the best content creators, the best musicians, writers, what have you, they get rewarded, they get um, sent the most. And you'll always have that, right? It's always going to be a distribution, you know, a Pareto distribution, if you like, of, 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 of the top performers and the top income earners. But I, I think, uh, I think that's where we'll see things go. And I think you'll benefit tremendously from being a, a pioneer basically in, in doing this first. I hope so. I mean, like, like you said, it's, um, it kind of brings you closer to the person you transacted with knowing it's peer to peer and there is yeah. no middleman. Mm -hmm. And you're also transacting in a currency that values your time and your and values the other person's time, what they're sacrificing or the work they put into whatever they're giving you in exchange for the sats. So that's important. And I like the fact that, um, Adam Curry, uh, who kind of coined the value for value thing, he says that it's not a tip, you know, don't call it a tip because like the word tip just in people's minds already creates this idea of something very small, but it could be any amount of value. Someone mm. could, you know, like for one of my songs, someone sent me 10, 10, like the equivalent of like $10, which was crazy for like one song. But it's like you said, it's whatever the, per the individual values it at. And when you throw it open to people like that and say, give whatever you feel, you're not putting a price on it. Like the, the person is putting the price on it, what they what they think it's worth. Mm -hmm. So it is an interesting new model, like new way of thinking about things. How did you come across it? Like were you a Bitcoiner first and came to value for value or did you hear about this value for value stuff and then dug into Bitcoin? How'd you? Yeah, well, I was kind of like, I was in a bit like interested in Bitcoin and I read, um, I read Safe's book, Bitcoin Standard, and that just kind of like blew the doors open, got me going down the, the Austrian economic rabbit hole and um, really got into that. But I was kind of like waiting on the sidelines and then Lightning was getting, you know, more and more developed and more and more like, e like easier to use. Um, and then I think it was Kevin Rook uh, that I first heard it from. Um, he was talking a lot about it and like all the podcasters seem to be having all the fun. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, I wonder if, uh, you know, why couldn't a musician just release a song on this instead of a podcast or call the song a podcast episode or whatever and just, you know. So, that, like, that's the first thing I did um, is a bit of a, a workaround until Wavelake came on the scene uh, a bit later on. Um, but, yeah, that, that it was Bitcoin first and then, you know, and then value for value. But the way I want to kind of, like, um, talk to people about it that aren't in this surf in the bitcoin world for instance that kind of don't really understand about it understand it uh, i don't want to like approach it as um you know i don't want to talk about bitcoin too much uh just because you know about the kind of economic implications or you know it gets you know, it's a lot of political implications all that it's stuff in the weeds really, yeah i don't really want to talk about that too much i want to kind of approach it from the angle of just a you pure utility you know like this is just a better way to send value online and support creators you know and have a better artist and fan relationship like that's the that's the angle i want to kind of take with people so on when i go out on tour in a few weeks time with every album that i sell well i'm gonna i'm gonna ask whoever buys an album i'm gonna say I, you know do you like tech sort of stuff are you technically inclined and if they say yes I'll offer them um, a value for value card 
And basically it's, you know, lights at, um, the platform lights sats where you can just like top up little cards and redeem sats. Maybe, maybe. Sounds somewhat familiar. Um, I'm going to get a load of I'm going to get a load of those printed up and they just come with like a QR code on them. Mm -hmm. You can hand them out. You can put any amount on there. So I'm going to put like a, a pound's worth of sats on there, hand them out to people, and then they can scan that. It will walk them through, through the steps of like downloading a wallet, redeeming the sats. And then I'm going to go and ask them to go to Wavelake or Fountain or my website even and like send those back or send a few of those sats back. Mm. Just get them you know, going full circle there and just seeing how the process works, you know, with money that isn't theirs, they don't have to commit to anything. Like I'm gifting them like a small amount just to kind of like give them a taste of it to see what they think. Um, and try and explain that this is how things might happen in the future when, you know, CDs are, <laughs> are phased out sort of thing. That's a great idea. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear the feedback on how that goes. Um, yeah, it's going to go really well. People are just going to like throw them in the bin. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you got to expect like ninety percent probably will do that, but you know, ten might set up a, uh, an account and start sending some sats, and maybe you facilitate their own journey down the rabbit hole, which would be great. Um, what, what's Wave like? Like, I haven't played with it yet. I don't. I don't really know much about it. But I was speaking with a friend of mine uh, here who's an accomplished jazz musician, and I was, you know, talking about value for value and all that stuff. And, um, but I don't really know how does wave Lake work. Can you walk me through it? It's super easy. Like it's easier than, um, cause with the podcast apps, you have to set up like an RSS account, um, and all that sort of stuff. But with wave Lake, it's just, you know, you set up an account with an email and a password, like anything, and you get given like your own, like the wallet is just in your account, uh, when you make an account with an email. Um, so you just make an account and you can just start uploading MP3 files straight away. Um, but whereas like, uh, I'm pretty sure, whereas like, uh, on fountain, if you upload to RSS, it goes on every, every podcasting app at once mm, mm. wave, like it just uploads to the wave Lake platform. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, in its very early stages. So it's just a web player at the moment. Like, I think they've got plans further down the road to make an app, an app uh, like for Android and uh, Apple. Um, but the idea is to use it as a place to consume music and send value back. Like they want to be a Spotify type thing. Pretty much. Um, and at the moment, like they've just released um, a new feature where you don't actually, because before you had to create an account to send sats even. So if I was just like even a listener, I'd have to create a Wavelake account to send sats. But now they've made it so you can boost people just from like the Albi wallet or like a browser extension without having to actually sign up for an account, um, which is handy, which is really good. Um, but I think like, you know, it needs to mature a bit. Like it, I'm sure they'll start having like, ways to make your own playlists and for like uh, artists to get categorized by genre so people can find artists that they might want to listen to a lot easier because um, there's still not not many artists on there at the moment so it's like it's really really early days right but you just you create an account upload your files and people can send you sats if they listen to them on that platform exactly yeah 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 cool. so i mean like i'd encourage your friend to just like get on it because like it'll take him like five minutes to set up an account 
and upload the music mm. and then it, like sit back and like any sats come in great watch the sats yeah. stream and withdraw them to something absolutely yeah like it's kind of at the moment i've been a bit i've kind of encouraged other artists on twitter that, that might be following me to kind of like look into it and jump on it but in real life um i've not really been that pushy with it yet because i want to kind of like uh, have a good run like say like 12 months on the platform to then like look back and kind of just do a an a b comparison with like legacy streaming platforms and then like wave lake and fountain and then like have some like solid numbers that i can like go to people with and be like look <laughs> you know jump on this like you, there's a little downside and this this is what you could you know potentially make um so like have something a bit more like tangible for people to like actually reference um but yeah i think the kind of concept is still a bit like alien to people so um have you tried I, to explain it to you know people at your shows or anyone else that you interact with in the music business like that this is something you're uh experimenting with and like do they get it is it interesting have you have you tried i feel like um, maybe i'm maybe i'm just rubbish at explaining it but like <laughs> the, the times i've tried people kind of glaze over a bit they're like oh i don't know what you're talking about like this doesn't sound you know, and I'm like, <laughs> what's so hard about it? <laughs> yeah, it's like interoperable microtransactions, you know, that's permissionless. <laughs> um, it's a big deal. Uh, I, I had a, an interview uh, for something different. Um, well, just my tour and my album with a local uh, reporter for a local newspaper. And we were talking about the, the streaming thing and like the, the struggles of artists with like plat streaming platforms and not making any money from the music. And then I mentioned buy for value and I was like, right. Cause I've got him sat with me, like in the room and I can like, he can, you know, ask, ask me questions and I can go back to him. Like I explained buy for value and within like 15 minutes, he got it, he, you know, it really clicked for them. And he was like, this is super exciting. He was like, we need to do a piece just focused on buy for value. Um, he's like, that can be a separate thing. We'll come back to that. But, he seemed to be quite excited by it and he, he seemed to get it when I explained it to him. But I think it's the kind of thing that you can't really explain that well in a tweet or two. It's kind of like, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, like so, so often with, with orange pilling, you know, people don't get it yeah. until they do. And then it's the most obvious thing in the world, you know? Yeah. I and mean, there's no going back. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just always the case with new innovations, I guess. Um, all right, tell me about the the new album. The first thing that comes to mind is, uh, and I'm completely a noob at all this music industry stuff, so this is probably a dumb question, but why a musician for 10 years and, and the first, this is the first album? How does that work? Okay, it's not it's not quite, it's, I'd say it's more like six or seven years, really. From like 20, yeah, 2016. So what's that, seven, seven years? Two years, COVID doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough. kind of justified in my own mind yeah. um, no, no, I, I, I have been putting out music up to now like i've released a few ep a couple of eps you know singles um i released a live album which i did uh last year uh but this is the first studio album um so it's kind of like i don't know may maybe it's just a bigger deal for me but like for artists like it's 
quite a big deal to release your first album because it's kind of like it's your sort of defining moment in a way mm. and I wanted it to be right I, I didn't want to put out an album before it was ready or just for the sake of it like I wanted to wait until I had the right body of work that, that worked as an album um, it's not like a concept but it's not a concept album as such like the album theme like ties the songs together um but the songs span over like six years of writing so like the oldest song on there is like six years old and then the newest song is like a few months old and everything in between um so that's kind of why it, you know it's taken as long as it has um and then just like getting enough like you know, big enough fan base, um, you know, I've still, still not that many fans, but like just gigging and touring enough previously to kind of have people that will be ready to, you know, want an album or buy mm. an album and release it as well. So there's that, there's that side of it too. What was the process like? Like how, how long does it take to record an album or your album? So I w I've been thinking about it for like 18 months now. Um, like I said, the songs span from like, of like six years worth of work. Um, but you know, 18 months it's been in the works and I started recording it in like August last year. So from then till like a few months ago, it was, it was, you know, finished and mastered and everything. So, um, I'd say all the like prep and all the admin around it. Is kind of what takes the time actually like going in there and recording it um is like pretty short that lasted like a few days um oh wow that's it crazy that all this all this like prep and all this work and so many years of writing songs just it just happens and comes together in a few days uh and then it took a few weeks for it to be mixed and mastered um but yeah there's a lot of parts that go into it it's like you know the concept the artwork um you know, mixing, mastering, um, all that stuff and, uh, getting them actually manufactured. Right. What's the, the plan for the launch? You know, you, you mentioned you're doing a tour, doing a few podcasts and stuff. What's the, like, how are you going to bring as yeah. much attention to this as possible? So I've, I've kind of like, um, I've been doing all the promo pretty much myself and just working with the venues I'm playing at to get the word out there. Um, so it's kind of like, I've been reaching out to like local papers and like radio, even though radio, it doesn't really have the same clout as it used to. Mm. Uh, and like a lot of the radio I've actually reached out to, they've come back and said, the ones that replied have sort of said, we're not, we're told what to play now. Like they have like a playlist that they've got to stick to. They're not allowed any new music in, right. which is crazy. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's another bottleneck you've got to try and get through. But um, yeah, and then like just, you know, getting in touch with fans that have been to shows previously in the towns that I'm playing. But like, I feel like um, the shows I've played before, the, the, the venues and the towns I've played before are doing a lot better than the new places naturally. Because like mm, mm. already a little bit of a fan base there that remember me from last time. Whereas trying to break new ground, it's... Uh, it's really, it's tough. It's Has very the tough. live like uh, show environment come back fully from COVID or is it like kind of still, or 
is there le- I mean, a lot of a lot of bars and restaurants and stuff closed down during COVID. So are there yes. fewer live gigs and live places to play live? Yeah, there are. I, think, I feel like like uh, audiences are a lot more reserved. And not only that, but like cost of living and everything, like people are being right. a lot more choosy, choosy with what they go and spend the money on, which mm. is fair enough. Um, so it's kind of like a double whammy there. Um, and like my crowd is a little bit older as well. So they're a bit more cautious when it comes to that. So um, yeah, it's, it's been tough. But I, I did um, like a little promo uh, with like Bitcoiners for like a discount uh, with tickets, off tickets if you pay in Bitcoin. Had a few sales with that, which was interesting. Um, and I've got like a lot of like local Bitcoin meetups to share it and, and stuff like that, which has been, just been good as well. That's so great. I've tried a few different angles. It's all been like grassroots, you know, um, because when it comes to marketing, anything, but like, in the music industry, it's kind of like your success is a lot of it's defined on how big your budget is, your marketing mm. budget. Is. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, yeah, the money that labels throw into like a tour, it's just, it's unreal. Like no, no self-employed musician, uh, you know, can, can live up to that. Like I did a little campaign, spent a few hundred pounds on like a very targeted, like, campaign and you can see all the stats like they break down like how many people open the email how many people click through and it's like the money doesn't get very far <laughs> it's crazy i feel like the best way is just like word of mouth grassroots you know well, i think i mean i don't know enough of the details to actually say this but i'll say it anyways um i mean i think bitcoiners love to support their own right yeah. and you, you're obviously or it seems like you're one of the first musicians to run with this value for value model and streaming sats and this kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know what this translates into, into how you can engage or provide value more to that, uh, demographic, let's say, but, uh, you know, there's surely there's gotta be more things you can do because I, I think that's the group of people that's hungry to support people that are doing good things in an aligned way and using these technologies of freedom and fairness and value transfer and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I think that's, that's a, at a minimum, a fairly captive audience right now, because there's so, there's so few people on there that like, you know, if you're doing something at all different as you are in, in, in being a musician, then you're already kind of like standing out from the crowd. And, you know, I, I think there'd, there'd be a, a pretty strong willingness to, you know, to support you and see you do yeah. well and promote I mean, your every- stuff, all that kind of stuff since i've started since i put out the first song in october like i've just been blown away by how generous the whole sort of bitcoin community has been really mm. um and i think i think that's partly to do with like um like you said they, people want to support each other but it's like you know if they see someone doing if, if someone does well then then it kind of it, it comes back to them because we're all working on the same same goal we all have the shared values um and it's like the appreciation like you know it's like the appreciation of the purchasing power of, of what we're all holding if if we're all succeeding kind of like it's a very virtuous cycle and all the incentives are aligned mm-hmm. it's like i feel like in the fiat world if you will it's the complete opposite like when i when i reach out to people about you know the, the album or the tour promo and stuff like that 
it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of people just see you as like a nuisance. <laughs> they don't want to reply to you because it's like, oh, what can you do for me? It's always like, you know, what are you bring to the table? Like, why should I even bother hearing you out? Whereas in the Bitcoin world, it seems the opposite way, you know? Like I've reached out to, I reached out to so many people when I released the first song and just said, hey, like, you don't know me. Like, I'm just getting into this. I've just got this song out. Would you mind having to listen to it? And if you like it, maybe consider giving it a share and like nine times out of 10 people did and i was like that is crazy like that that just doesn't happen like yeah yeah so i totally agree and that's why i say i mean again i don't creative juices aren't flowing at the moment but surely there's got to be ways to well let's say broadly speaking provide more value or engage or communicate to your fellow Bitcoiners more. And I, I imagine there's be no more fruitful approach than, than that, it, se it seems. Yeah, well, I, I definitely want to like get involved with more like Bitcoin events. I'm, I'm doing a local gig near me, um, a bar called Satoshi's Place, uh, which is nice. close by that have booked me for a gig um, as part of like um, uh, like an event day that they're putting on. Um, and then uh, Avon Park, um, which is like um, near, uh, it's in Somerset. Uh, they're, they're having a festival in July. They've invited me down there to play. Um, so that's gonna be that's gonna be interesting. I feel like uh, I want to try something with that. Um, you know, like I've said to them, I, I want to like cover my expenses and I'll play for tips, like value for value. Mm -hmm. So I'll play my set. And if people like a particular song, they can like send me sats during that song or, you know, pay me, like send a few sats at the end of the, the set that I play. And I could have like a, my lightning address up there or, or whatever mm -hmm. um, and just see what happens with that. Uh, because people are engaging, that your fans are engaging back at you in real time when you're in front of them on stage. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what that dynamic's like when that totally when that and you know as, as a pioneer well you'll be pioneering a lot of this stuff so there's, there'll probably be a lot of trial and error through the course of, of playing with it all but i think the premise that you mentioned earlier of the audience or the listener really valuing that more uh close or one-to-one -one, you know on a un disintermediated relationship with the artist is way underappreciated and undervalued today. And I think when the tools are developed for for that relationship to be more frictionless and you know more variety in the ways that you can interact and the ways you can send value back and forth, I think there's going to be well, the, 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 there's going to be an explosion in in that, in that kind of stuff. And I think it'll be more apparent that how valuable that relationship is. You know, that really like it's not abstracted anymore, and there's not a million people in between. It's like and even if you don't communicate verbally or text or anything, right? Like just if you knew that uh, someone sent you, you know, some sats today because they listened to your thing or, and this is kind of the, the allure, the value of boostograms and stuff, right? Like someone could just say, Hey man, lo love this song. Here's 10,000 sats. And there, there's just, that's a different sort of dynamic that is completely foreign, uh, you know, to most people and to yeah. anything in the digital world. And I, I think that the impact of that is, is going to be pretty big once, once more people taste it and once the, the, the tools get a little bit more sophisticated. Sure, it, bring, it brings back like an economic signal back to the, 
to the whole mu music industry in general because like it's all based on like streams now but streams kind of they're not the best uh, way to measure things because like you could get put into a playlist that has a lot of listeners but it could be like background music somewhere mm. you know people could be putting on these playlists in like shops and restaurants and it's like background and people aren't listening to the song and they're not engaging with the song uh, but you could have like hundreds of thousands of streams potentially but that might not translate into people that are actually connecting with it so if people are actually zapping you or sending you sats for the song it it kind of it it reattaches it back to economic reality or it like brings back that signal uh to the content again mm. and it kind of like gives you that feedback mechanism of like is what i'm doing valuable is it good or am i kind of like you know is it not good like do i need to change things um so yeah that's that's super interesting but with the live stuff as well it'd be cool to just like put on a free gig put on a free show um to a load of bitcoin and be like come along um hope, hopefully one day it won't just be a bit everyone will be a bitcoiner <laughs> we'll say come along to the show for free um i'm going to play a set and if you like what you're hearing as you go along feel free to send some sats and then people might start tipping you and they might actually send you a big boost and say, can you, can I request a song? I'm going to send you 50,000 sats, 100,000 sats. Can you play this song for me right. and dedicate it to me or whatever? You know what I mean? So you could have totally, that. Totally. Um, and also, you know, th this is kind of funny, but I think there's truth to it. It's like you mix some alcohol in there. I mean, everyone gets looser with their money when there's alcohol involved. So you might be sitting at the bar, you, you know, you're five beers deep and you play a really great song. And I might just open up the app and be like, here's 30 fucking bucks, you know, fuck it, you know? And yeah. I, that'll that'll probably be a meaningful part of it especially for the live stuff as you're mentioning i mean i already do that sometimes if i you know had uh, a few beers and i'm sitting down on the couch i'm on uh, nostra or something and just zapping people around or buying people drinks on a friday night or something it's just yeah i don't know it's fun there's something there's something fun about it you know and i think yeah, that'll be uh, a big you element you have something worked out with the barman to keep serving people cheap drinks <laughs> it's working we'll give them that back. yeah yeah <laughs> What would you, one of my last questions for you, but what, what would you say is um, the, the development or the technology that you would most like to see develop to enable something that you, you've been having issues with or it's been a friction point or, you know, how would you like to see this value for value tech develop next? So I think for me, it would be the onboarding of the listener side of things because like there's there's this whole weird gray area of like um you know them having to acquire sats to then send uh, yeah. and like how do they do that there's like kyc rules and like no one's going to want to like give up their driver's license and passport to buy 10 pounds worth of sats to send you like a few pounds worth you, mm -hmm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. so like but I don't, I don't know if that, that's not a technical uh, problem. That's more of like a regulatory issue. Um, but like, maybe I keep waiting for like something like Strike to come out over here where it's just super easy. People can download an app from the app store and they don't even, you know, it's like a, they've got their fiat balance in there. They don't even have to know that they're using Lightning or Bitcoin, but it just works. and it sends instantly and they can just start, you know, top that up 
with 50, 50 pounds or 100 pounds and just start, you know, sending sats to people. Um, and they can just see their, their fiat balance in there. I think that would be like a good first step for people. Mm. Um, but at the moment, like, this is why I'm doing the value for value pack and, and gifting people sats to get started with. Because if I, you know, if I said, a show someone's like oh how do i get on this web uh, wave lake and or fountain and how do i support you i'd be like well you gotta go you know you gotta go to an exchange right you have to give up your you know all your, your personal details like you're setting up a bank account and you've got to wire some money to it then you've got to download a wallet you've got to send the, the funds off the exchange to your wallet then you've got to get it onto lightning <laughs> and then you've got a lot of a lot of a lot of steps they're just going to be like no i'm not doing that you know yeah. what I mean? so, I'll throw a, I'll throw a, like a dollar in your bucket. That's way easier, you know? Exactly. So I think, um, I think what might just happen, um, it's like, you know, when landline phones, uh, just on the back end, just turn to uh, voice over IP mm-hmm. and like people that were probably like, Oh, I'm never going to use the internet. You know, I'm just going to stick with my landline phone and that's all I need. And then it was like, a few years later, the landlines were all using the internet at the back end, and the person didn't even realize that they were using voice over IP. You know, it might be the same with their like Venmo account or whatever it, that just interop- uh, you know, plugs into Lightning, like Cash mm-hmm. Apps, right? In the States, like it might just be a case that everything just gets plugged into Lightning and people don't have to migrate from their app. The app that they're using but they can't just start sending you value because all of a sudden like microtransactions just suddenly get turned on one day in paypal or whatever they use but that's just because those systems plugged into lightning that they didn't have to get onto lightning mm-hmm. maybe and then over the course of time the older version the old, the legacy tech just becomes obsolete and you know people don't even really realize where the the switch actually happened Exactly. Yeah. It'd just be like, I feel like a good way to look at it is just like what happened with the internet mm. probably will happen again. Similar experience maybe. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Um, well, man, this has been great. I, um, I was looking forward to this because, you know, I'm obviously a big Bitcoin proponent and I think it's essential that, and this has been the, the case, you know, since the beginning that a circular economy, a parallel economy, if you will, develops around Bitcoin, right? People have to be using it, earning it, spending it, and of course, saving it for this to become a, a system that people can sustain themselves on and which can outcompete the legacy system that so many of us are so critical of. And uh, I loved seeing the emergence of different content creators, artists, entrepreneurs, all, all different types really starting to plug into the system and, you know, even though there's a lot of legwork and it's messy because you're a pioneer and you're the first to do it and all the, maybe the headaches that come with that, uh, persisting and doing that. And hopefully both immediately and as we move into the future, availing of the benefits of that. And, uh, you know, so I, I think you're on the right course and it's, it's great to see you uh, doing what you're doing. Do you want to chill the, the album and tour and website destinations and all that stuff before we shut it down? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, if there's anyone from the UK listening, uh, I'm going out on a, a 14 day tour of the country starting on the 13th of April and it finishes up, uh, on the 30th of April. 
Um, so if you want to go, the best place to go to find tickets to that is just my website, which is joemartinmusic.com slash tour. Um, all the socials, it's just Joe Martin Music. Uh, I'm on Nostra as well now. So come say hi on there. And like on Fountain and, and Wave Lake, it's again, it's just Joe Martin Music. Um, I've got a couple of singles out that are going to be on the album already. Um, but the album, the album actually drops on the 1st of May. So I'm actually going out on tour before the album is officially out online because I've got a load of CDs that I want, <laughs> I want to try and vlog before uh before people can listen to it for free um but keep an eye out for the actual album coming out online so that's the first of may but it will be out on all the value for value platforms a little earlier than that so and name of the album uh, it's called empty passenger seat nice nice and that's one of the songs on it too right yeah, that, that's the single i just released that's the title track of the album yeah that's a great song man i was jamming out to it earlier thanks john cheers um, well, look, man, best of luck with the tour and with the album and uh, with everything else you're doing. And maybe we do this again in six to 12 months and see where things are at and, and have an update then. Have a recap for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, nice bro. Take, take care. Thank you, dude. Thank you.